You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This week, we continue our series on what's happening in Ukraine with a deeper discussion of the law of armed conflict and whether or not anyone in the Russian military hierarchy will ever be brought to justice. But before we get into that, we're going to give you a few news updates. The first one is that there is now concern about Israel, America's ally in the Middle East, and one of the few democracies in the region. Although this week, Prime Minister Netanyahu has reduced the authority of Israel's judiciary. And there has been very strong reaction from inside Israel, and that reaction has been angry. There are rising concerns that Netanyahu will further extend his own authority to the extent that Israel could find itself nearing an insurrection. But in other news, a sigh of relief was heard across NATO when voters in the Czech Republic, a NATO member country, rejected a populist candidate for president in favor of retired General Peter Pavel. President-elect Pavel has already reached out to Taiwan and spoken via phone to Taiwan's president in a call that lasted 15 minutes, which to a world leader is more like four hours. And the U.S. military has gained access to a key base in the Philippines island of Luzon, according to the Washington Post. The base, which could prove strategically important for the United States in countering China, would be a major advancement for the U.S., particularly since the Philippines' President Marcos was reported to be in a romance with Chinese President Xi. And this occurred right after the leader of the U.S. Air Force predicted a war with China or said it could happen. And the U.S. halted licenses for U.S. companies selling 5G-related technology to Huawei and apparently also negotiated with Japan and the Netherlands to restrict their technology companies from selling 5G-related items to Huawei. And elsewhere, the European Union is set to consider whether to impose sanctions on the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, IRGC, after Iranian attack drones were used to target civilian locations in Ukraine. And at the same time, Iran has acknowledged that one of its military sites in Isfahan was bombed, though Iran has not blamed any specific country as of this recording. And as well, the United States has now curbed exports by Iranian firms producing drones for Russia. So the EU is considering additional sanctions, and now the U.S. has, in fact, issued some. And in Russia, the central bank governor, Elvira, I don't know how to pronounce her name, so I'm going to do my best, which is Nabi Ulina, is pushing for more transparency of Russia's financial data, which was previously classified due to the war in Ukraine. And apparently Putin would not like to see this data made public since it might reveal something about the efficacy of U.S. and global sanctions against the Kremlin. So to the extent Governor Nabiulina finds herself in disagreement with Vladimir Putin, guess who wins that dispute? The guy who can order the poison tea. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is building ties with Asia this week by paying visits to both South Korea and Japan. And most financial outlets are reporting that the global economic outlook may not be so bad. That's right. France, like at the same time, has indicated that it is considering sending fighter jets to Ukraine. And today, shockingly, former prime minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, has said that Vladimir Putin threatened him with a missile. 
this would likely have been an imprudent threat since it would have wiped out all of Russia's filthy lucre held in the UK financial institutions and Russian real estate held in Mayfair, South Kensington and Knightsbridge, not to mention Manchester United, then owned by a Russian oligarch. And now on to the show. My guest tonight is David Graham. He is a member of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, and we're very glad to have him. Colonel Graham is the former chair of the International Operational Department of the Judge Advocate General School of the Army, where he played a major role in developing the field of operational law. He's also the former director of the Center for Law and Military Operations and the former chief of the International Operational Law Division in the Office of the Judge Advocate General in the Department of the Army. His bio goes on and on, but one thing I would point out is that he is the former associate director of the Center for National Security Law at UVA Law School, and he is, of course, a special advisor to the ABA's Standing Committee. He's also on the editorial board of the Journal of National Security Law and Policy, which is excellent peer-reviewed journal that you should all be reading. And he's a senior fellow at the Georgetown Law Center on National Security. We're so glad to have you, David. Thanks for coming. Uh, Lisa, it's good to be here. Okay, you're the right guy because you were doing operational decisions in the field. Could you please educate us and consider the fact that there may be sort of neophytes to this area listening Tell us a little bit about the history of armed conflict and how it has evolved over the years and what it is composed of in terms of its major components. Okay, well, the history of law of armed conflict and its principal components in five minutes or less, Elisa. I know you can do it. You can do it in six minutes. To do that, we have to go back to 1859 and to what is now Italy and the Battle of Solferino, where the mostly French forces of Napoleon III defeated the forces of the Austrian Hungarian Empire. Now, this battle, the Battle of Solferino, resulted in thousands and thousands of casualties. The next day, a Swiss national, Henri Dunant, walked this battlefield, and he was stunned not only by the number of dead, but the number of wounded still lying on the battlefield and dying on the battlefield because they hadn't received adequate medical care. So he published a book in 1862, and this book was widely distributed in Western Europe, and the Western European Nations reacted. They sent representatives to Geneva in 1864, and this resulted in the production of the first Geneva Convention. Now, this first Geneva Convention was very brief in nature. It really only dealt essentially with the protection of the wounded, medical personnel, medical transports. But the 1864 Geneva Convention evolved and expanded over the following decades. In 1906, in 1929, and finally in 1949, resulting in the four Geneva Conventions that we know and use today. The first convention, dealing with the wounded and sick in the field. The second, the wounded and sick at sea. The third, dealing with POWs. And the fourth, dealing with the protection of civilians in time of war. This is the first component of the law of armed conflict as we know it today. This is known as Geneva Law. And it deals with the protection of what we call the victims of war, civilians, the wounded and sick, POWs, medical personnel, and medical transports. There are 196 parties to the Geneva Conventions. And I think it's important to note for our purposes today, these parties include both the Russian Federation and Ukraine. Now, the second component of the law of armed conflict that will evolve over the years is the Hague Convention of 1907. 
And again, for our purposes, we're dealing with Hague Convention 4 that deals specifically with land warfare. This convention focuses on what we call the means and methods by which conflict is conducted. That is, it deals with what constitutes the lawful methods of waging conflict, as well as the requirement to employ lawful means, i.e. weapons or weapon systems, in conducting these conflicts. This is called the Hague Law, the third component of law of armed conflict. The 1977 Protocols of Digital to the 49 Geneva Conventions, Protocol 1 deals with international armed conflict, Protocol 2 deals with non-international armed conflict. We're concerned, of course, today with that first protocol that deals with international armed conflict. Protocol 1 is an amalgam of the Hague and Geneva Law. It's a convergence of these two. It has a hundred articles dealing with both the protection of the victims of war and the means and methods of conducting conflict. And again, there are 170 war parties to Protocol 1. Importantly, for our purposes, it includes once more the Russian Federation and Ukraine. The fourth component of the law of armed conflict. This is simply the various treaties and international agreements that have evolved over the years. And these international agreements relate primarily to the means of conducting armed conflict, i.e. the weapons and the weapon systems. And I'm talking here about the 1972 Biological Weapons Convention, the 93 Chemical Weapons Convention, the 1980 Conventional Weapons Convention, the Convention of Ottawa in 1994 that dealt with anti-personnel mines, the cluster munitions of 2008, and the list and list that go on and on, deals with incendiary weapons and lasers. But this is the fourth component of the law of armed conflict. Now, the fifth and last component of the law of armed conflict is what we call customary law of armed conflict. This is the customary law of armed conflict that's evolved over the almost the last 200 years. And the most important of this customary law of armed conflict, four basic principles of the law of armed conflict that are in use today. And those are military necessity, what we call distinction, humanity or unnecessary suffering, and proportionality. And before I close, I only want to deal with two of those. The first is distinction. Adversaries in a conflict are obligated to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants and between protected places and property and military objectives. And secondly, the principle of proportionality. This says that the anticipated loss of civilian life, injury, damage to civilian property cannot be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage expected to be gained. That's the end of our brief tour, the historical tour of the law of armed conflict and its principal components, Elisa. Okay, let's talk about the last part of that. You've mentioned a number of conventions. You've brought us all the way to the current time. Are there any of those from which the Russian Federation or Ukraine said, we will not participate and we will not sign on. I think for the purposes of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, both the Russian Federation and Ukraine are signatories to the 49 Geneva Conventions, to the 1907 Hague Convention, to Protocol 1, to the 49 Convention, and of course, they're all subject to the customary law of armed conflict. So I think it's safe to say that 
the law of armed conflict as a whole, all of the codified and customary law of armed conflict are applicable to the conflict ongoing in Ukraine at the current time. But none of them have said, we don't agree with these principles. There's never been a moment in these agreements, the forging of these agreements, when they've said, I'm sorry, we're not playing by those rules. No, been no such statement by either party to the conflict. Okay. And now that we've identified the components, let's talk about how all of this applies. And as a piece of this, what I would ask you to do is we can talk about first, how is it applicable and is it applicable, obviously, to the current situation, the current war? Let's take, for example, the Russian attacks on civilian infrastructure. All right. Just using that as an example. And if you ask me if are those attacks on the Russian infrastructure really lawful under the law of armed conflict, I'd give you a, a lawyer's response to that, Alisa. I'd say it depends. Now, there are probably individuals in your listening audience that are saying, what's with this guy? Obviously, under the law of armed conflict, civilian infrastructure cannot, should not be attacked. And again, I would say it depends. Now, certainly the law of armed conflict most certainly prohibits specifically targeting civilian property, civilian infrastructure. But what if, just what if, this infrastructure, the infrastructure in issue, not only supports the civilian populace, but also also supports the war-making capacity, the war-making capability of the Ukrainian military. Then it falls into dual-use category, dual-use facilities that may just, in fact, be subject to armed attack because they constitute a military objective. Now, the logical question there is, what constitutes a military objective? I'm going to take the definition right out of the 2015 DOD Law of War Manual. A military objective is any object which by its nature, location, purpose, or use makes an effective contribution to military action and whose total or partial destruction, capture, or neutralization in the circumstances ruling at the time offers a definite military advantage. So it all depends on whether the Russian military is also making use of the civilian infrastructure to further its military efforts. And I also add, just in conjunction with this issue, even protected places and property, and by that, Elisa, I mean hospitals, schools, cultural, religious sites can also lose their protected status if, in fact, the Ukrainian military is using one of those protected sites for purposes that are harmful to the enemy. Now, let me give you an example of that. If the Ukrainian military chooses to use a hospital in which to place an aircraft battery, for example, that would be a use harmful to the enemy. And therefore, that particular otherwise protected site would lose its protected status and become the object of military attack. Okay, understood. And I know we have made that argument sometimes in the past, particularly in the war in Iraq. But first of all, Russia is not necessarily a credible player in this scenario. So that's one thing to consider. But the second thing is that if you look at that definition, it feels listening to it as if it could go to almost no limits. So let me take for a moment the apartment complexes. Most individuals in the Ukraine, the way people live in the Ukraine is a lot like the way they live in cities. 
full families live in these large apartments that are tending to be in high-rise apartment complexes. Now, they've been already evidence that they've targeted, at this point, almost 160,000 of these buildings, and they bombed them into rubble. And these hold thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of families. And there's not been really any argument from the Russian side that I'm aware of, or no indication that these apartment buildings are somehow functioning in a dual use capacity. So let's assume arguendo that there's no battery being hidden in there. There are no arms being hidden in there, but we're also in a situation where the war has been so dramatically dangerous for Ukraine that every able-bodied man in Ukraine is now obligated and has been conscripted. Does this convert the bombing of apartment buildings into somehow these dual use targets just because in natural response to this aggression, all able-bodied men who may reside in these apartments are conscripted and could be involved in the defense of their country? No, I don't think that's a valid argument, Elisa. I don't think that converts the apartments in which they dwell into a military objective. And in terms of simply the apartments themselves, they absolutely cannot be made specifically targets of an armed attack. And it really doesn't matter whether they're intentionally targeted by Russian missiles or drones, or whether these apartment complexes are damaged by the indiscriminate firing of these missiles or drones. So the apartments are simply not legitimate military objectives. But again, and as you've already noted, It makes a difference as to whether, even though they're protected as civilian facilities, they can lose that protective status if, in some way, shape, or form, they are used in a way that brings harm to the enemy, and they lose their protective status. But certainly, almost exclusively speaking, these apartment complexes are not legitimate military objectives and cannot be either intentionally attacked or attacked simply as a matter of indiscriminate bombing of Ukraine. Okay. And then one of the things that you mentioned at the beginning, which is so important, is sort of the genesis of all of this area of law, and that is the mitigation of suffering in general of human beings. And one of the things that I'd like to focus you on for just a minute is that this unending targeting of infrastructure, such as power grids in the Ukraine, facilities that are used for water supply. These are things that can just sustain a population, keep children fed, make sure that individuals can stay warm and don't freeze to death. How does that or how could that ever convert into a target that is somehow okay under the law of armed conflict? Or is that really just like the idea of bombing all these apartment complexes, you would have to really strain any interpretation of these conventions? I think that's true. Again, Infrastructure, as I said, can be used not only to support the civilian population, but certain infrastructure, such as power grids, such as certain bridges. That infrastructure can also be used to support the war-making efforts of the Ukrainian military and could be looked upon as constituting a dual-use target and subject to attack. But there's certain infrastructure that is completely immune from attack. And these are objects essential to the survival of the civilian population. And I'm talking here in terms of livestock, foodstuffs, crops, irrigation systems, waterworks. 
those cannot be targeted under any situation or any condition because they're considered to be essential to the survival of the human population in Ukraine. And so those things are, are completely off limits. And that's spoken to specifically in Protocol 1 and Article 54. Let's go back for just a second. What I didn't hear you say at the beginning, and, and I want you to help me understand this, is that the Geneva Convention applies in times of armed conflict, just the term armed conflict. It does not appear, or does it, evaluate the legitimacy of the initiation of the war by either side. In other words, if this is purely a war of aggression, because Vladimir Putin wants to reclaim the days of the Soviet Union and his high-flung youth as a member of the KGB, if, if really this is not about any sort of legitimate reason to attack, what then about all these justifications that are now potentially available, such as the dual use of a property or a target? Does the law of war, a law of armed conflicts, consider whether or not there was any valid reason to enter into the conflict in the first place? That's a good question, Elise, and it's actually an, an overarching question. The waging of an aggressive war is actually the principal violation of the law of armed conflict. And by that, I mean it violates the fundamental norm of the United Nations Charter, Article 2.4, which prohibits the invasion of another country. It prohibits the use of force or even the threat of the use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. So that is the overarching violation of the law of armed conflict. The use of force is a portion of the law of armed conflict. So that's a violation of the overarching principle of the law of armed conflict, the prohibition against the illegal use of force, the waging of an aggressive war in violation of Article 2.4 of the UN Charter. It's good to understand that threshold issue, but at some point this war will end, whether it's next week or two years from now or 10 years from now. I think we have all begun to imagine what any kind of accountability would actually look like. Assuming the law of armed conflict has been violated egregiously and repeatedly since the beginning of this invasion more than a year ago now, what happens to the individuals who've participated in these acts, such as the military commanders? Where and how are they held accountable in a scenario such as this? Well, I think individuals can be and certainly are held accountable for violations of the law of armed conflict. Indeed, Elisa, states are under an international obligation to prosecute members of their own militaries for commission of war crimes. Protocol 1 refers to these crimes as grave breaches of both the Geneva Conventions and Protocol 1. And military commanders are not immune from prosecution for these crimes. In fact, military commanders can be prosecuted in three ways. If military commanders commit these crimes themselves, if they order the commission of these crimes, are under the concept of command responsibility. Now, what do I mean by the concept of command responsibility? This simply means that if a commander knew or should have known, given the evidence available to him or to her, that forces under his or her command 
or in fact committing crimes and took no action feasible at the time to prevent such crimes from occurring and being committed, that commander can be held responsible for the commission of these crimes. But this gets to the larger question that is in the back of my mind. And that is that it looks to me, as I am an outside observer, that nobody is in a position to disagree with Vladimir Putin. Almost everybody who has opposed him has ended up falling out a hospital window, falling down steps, drinking poison tea, being humiliated on national television and ostracized. So these military commanders may not feel that even safe to offer a different point of view. Is there any way that they would be able to shelter themselves from liability by simply saying, I didn't have any other choice under the circumstances? No, I don't think the excuse of I have had no other choice is going to exonerate them from international prosecution. That's a short answer to your question. But I think one of the questions that you had posed earlier to me gives rise to this question, whether there can really exist any accountability for individual soldiers and commanders committing war crimes. And I want to speak to that because there are examples of accountability uh, being affected when war crimes have been committed. There are many examples in the U.S. military. We have had individual soldiers and officers prosecuted for the commission of war crimes in every conflict in which we've been engaged, uh, prosecuted under various articles of our Uniform Code of Military Justice. And many other militaries have also prosecuted individuals. But from an international perspective, this has also been true. It's true with respect to the Nuremberg Tribunal, the prosecution of Nazi war criminals, the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal, the, the prosecution of Japanese war criminals. More recently, the 1993 ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, the prosecution of war crimes in the Balkans. In 94, the ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the prosecution for war crimes there. So there has, in fact, been accountability, both on the individual state level and internationally. Okay. Well, you know, I do believe that the arc of history bends toward justice. But let's talk about what this could look like at the end of the Ukraine conflict, because Hitler was never tried, of course. And I'm not aware of a leader of a major, you know, globally, a huge country ever being held accountable for any kind of a conflict that resulted in this level of human suffering and destruction. I just wonder, based on your very long-term experience, people looking at the law of armed conflict may say this sort of potentially penalizes the guy in the middle. I wonder, based on your experience, how you would respond to that sort of sense that maybe at a certain level, people don't see justice. Yeah, I think that's, that's really a two-part question. Let me speak to the question of whether a state can be held accountable for engaging in aggressive warfare. I think a state as a whole, obviously, can't be placed in an international dock and tried for waging aggressive war, which, by the way, is, as we've discussed, is an international crime, which is important. And it's an international crime because it does violate that Article 2.4 of the United Nations Charter. But I think the populace of a state as a whole 
can be and probably should be made to pay a price for their nation engaging in the waging of aggressive war. This can be accomplished through the levying of economic sanctions and damage to the economy within their state. They can be done with respect to travel restrictions, a decision by states not to issue visas for travel. Russians can vacation in China and Belarus and nowhere else. I don't think there should be a participation of Russian athletes in international competition, and I wish the IOC would take that position. Russia could be expelled from international organizations. So a price can be, and I would argue should be paid, by the Russian populace as a whole for its continued support for the Russian leadership in waging an aggressive war. The second part of your question is whether individuals can be held responsible for the waging of aggression and the commission of multiple war crimes violations in the context of that waging. There are a number of four available for prosecution of, of individuals. There are, of course, the domestic courts, the domestic court system of Ukraine. And as you know, Ukraine has already conducted a number of war crimes trials with respect to individual Russian soldiers. I'm not sure it's a great idea to conduct war crimes trials while the actual conflict is underway, but that's one forum. There's the International Criminal Court. And I would remind your listeners that the International Criminal Court and its jurisdiction not only over genocide and commission of crimes against humanity, it also has jurisdiction over war crimes and aggression. The Ukraine recognizes the jurisdiction of the ICC. Russia signed the Rome Statute establishing the ICC and then withdrew its signature of the uh, statute in 2019, largely because it faced liability because of its actions in Syria. Actions, by the way, that are similar, if not exactly the same actions that it's taking in Ukraine. So that's a possibility. There could be an especially constituted international tribunal, such as the ICTY, the ICTR. This is probably more difficult to do through the United Nations, because through the United Nations, it would be subject to the Russian veto, and most probably the veto of China. And there are prosecutions in various state courts. By states, I mean the individual countries and the international community. And this can be conducted under the concept of universal jurisdiction over international crimes. War crimes and the crime of aggressive war are indeed international crimes. Now, more often than not, uh, these prosecutions are conducted in absentia. Spain and Germany have simply very recently conducted such in absentia trials. So individual soldiers, NCOs, commanders in the field, if identified, if the evidence is available, can be prosecuted in any of these judicial forums, most probably in absentia because of lack of in personam jurisdiction. And then they might certainly be subject to arrest and prosecution in any state recognizing the conviction in issue. In fact, Article 88 of Protocol 1 requires the mutual assistance in criminal matters proceedings brought with respect to grave breaches, which encompass war crimes and aggressive war, 
grave breaches of the 49 Geneva Conventions and Protocol 1. If nothing else, this could certainly cut down on international travel for these individuals. The leadership, the leadership of the state, which planned and conducted, sustained this aggressive war, both civilian and military, could be prosecuted in these same forums. So Putin, Lavrov, all the other civilians, all the military officers, and the operational chain of command could be charged with waging an aggressive war. And this is all you would have to prove in their case, waging an aggressive war. And I think that's self-evident. They could be prosecuted again in absentia, subject to the same liability for arrest and prosecution in other states, using the mechanisms or the reasons that we just discussed with the military commanders and individual soldiers, Elisa. So there, there can be accountability and there can be recourse to a number of judicial forums in which both individual soldiers and the leadership of the Russian state can be tried and held accountable for war crimes and for waging an aggressive war. Okay, well, I, I would like to see there be some accountability, but let's switch to an uncomfortable side of a discussion, uh, any discussion of the law of armed conflict. Anytime a nation is invaded in the way that Ukraine has been invaded, there is rage and anger on a level that is almost beyond comprehension. There is no doubt the Wall Street Journal has in particular covered a couple of instances where it sure looks based on their story, and I don't have any of the facts to know one way or another other than what I've seen in print, that Ukraine too has committed assassinations of individuals thought to be spying on Russia. I think one thing I would ask is regarding the law of armed conflict, as I hear you describing it to me, it applies to both sides. And certainly atrocities can, and probably when this is all over with, will have occurred, obviously not on the scale of what Russia is doing, but there will be instances in which other crimes were committed by Ukraine. Victim nations in an aggressive war, do they get any sort of relief from liability under the law of armed conflict because of their circumstances? Well, let me go back to something you just said. There's a distinction. I think you said spying on Ukraine. There's a distinction, a very sharp distinction to be made between spies, because they're spying outside of the uniform that they were normally wearing, and lawful combatants on the part of the Russian state who are entitled to POW status. So let's draw a distinction there. Let's say that both the Russians have executed summarily without due process Ukrainian POWs, and in turn, Ukrainian soldiers have executed again, summarily without due process, Russian POWs. And this is an issue that often arises. And it's a question that is almost always asked by students, Elisa. The students say, if a state is clearly an aggressor state, and another state is clearly a victim state, is the latter freed from its law of armed conflict obligations? Just the situation that you presented it, Lisa. And to answer, and, and I answer it in absolute terms, absolutely not. Now, the devil's in the details. Why? In answering that, let me read you a cite from an almost forgotten text of the official commentary 
the common Article I of the Geneva Conventions. It says, as noted in the commentary to Article I, the application of the conventions does not depend on whether the conflict is just or unjust. The commentaries are not merely an engagement concluded on a basis of reciprocity, binding each party to the conflict only insofar as the other party observes its obligations. It is rather a series of unilateral engagements solemnly contracted before the world as represented by the other contracting parties. Each state contracts obligations vis-a-vis -vis itself and at the same time vis-a-vis -vis the others. So in response to your questions, if Ukrainian individual soldiers or even Ukrainian civilians commit any type of war crime, they must be prosecuted. So they are not relieved of their obligations under the law of armed conflict. Their soldiers and their civilians must be tried in due process under their own judicial systems and prosecuted for the commission of those crimes. It actually seems to me that this could happen, but it could also happen in such a way that there is upset because Ukraine proceeds to try its own and Russia continues on kind of in the frame of mind that it appears to be right now and doesn't actually punish its own. It seems that punishment in Russia at this point in time is meted out for disagreement or truthful commentary by opponents of the Kremlin, but not really for too much else in this conflict. The fact that Ukrainian military will prosecute its own soldiers for violations of the law of armed conflict and the Russian military will not uh, draws a sharp distinction between what constitutes a professional military and a non-professional military. I think there's ample evidence that the Russian military currently is reduced to nothing more than a collection of thugs, mercenaries, and convicts. And they act that way. And again, I think it's important to demonstrate before the world, if you're Ukrainians, that you are a professional military. And that it's demonstrated by the fact that you take violations of the law of armed conflict seriously, whereas the Russian military does not. And the fact that the Russian military is not prosecuting for violations of the law of armed conflict simply demonstrates the non-professional stature of the Russian military as it exists today. And it's because of that non-professional statute that it continues to commit over and over and over again egregious violations of the established law of armed conflict. All right. Well, that is a, now on a grim topic. I think we have to shift for a moment and we need a moment of levity. I have summarized the law of armed conflict to my son. And I have explained to him what he is allowed to do and what he is not allowed to do. One of the principles of all decent parents is that just because someone else is doing it doesn't make it okay. And as I listen to you right now, I am sort of thinking on a lighter note, because I have to at the end of a podcast on such a weighty subject, that at the end of the day, we all kind of know what the law of armed conflict really is, because we've been parents. But that this inherent decency that we try to teach our children 
And the notion that what is right is right, regardless of what everybody is doing around you, it just appears to be utterly lost as we look out at this conflict right now. And it's very um, despairing to look at. It's very upsetting. So I appreciate you very much talking about this. And I welcome any jokes you wish to make at this time just to interrupt this sort of very weighty, heavy topic. There's got to be one you've had all these years. There's got to be something. I don't have a joke, Elisa, but let me let me make a final point. It's kind of a, a legal policy issue as opposed to a strictly legal issue. And again, it goes back to this very important topic of accountability that we've spent some time doing this podcast uh, talking about. And I would simply say that I think Russia's actions with respect to waging an aggressive war, these actions are a challenge. It's a, a threat to the global system of security in place that we've had in place for the past 75 years. And I think simply a slap on the wrist in terms of accountability, a welcome back to the international community, a shrug of the shoulders, simply, uh, well, big states will be big states. I think this would send a signal. It would establish a precedent that would destroy the global system of security that we have in place today. And I think the international community as a whole, and even those states that are either explicitly or implicitly providing support to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think it should give pause to those states to reconsider their position because Ukraine is not simply fighting for its own sovereignty and its own security. It is in fact, fighting for the security of the entire international community. And that cannot be lost on any of us. And that's that's not a joke. It's, it's ending on a very sober statement, but it's certainly a very heartfelt statement. And this has been an important topic, and I hope we've been able to do it justice. Well, I appreciate you talking to me. I, I was trying to make light of it because it is such a heavy, weighty topic. But I appreciate your comment. Your final remarks are very similar to the ones that Judge Baker has made about the absolute seriousness of this, the need for the international community to come together and apply its standards to these circumstances and hold accountable, ultimately, the individuals who made the decision to push this conflict forward. So I appreciate you coming in. I know you've thought about this for decades, and it's on your mind all the time as you're looking out at the news these days and seeing what is happening. We'll hope to talk to you soon. And I hope when we do talk to you next time, it's because this conflict has ended. Well, that would be my fervent hope too, Alisa. It, it may be a futile hope in terms of the near foreseeable future, but we can always be optimistic and we can always hope for the best. And we'll always hope that the international community at large supports their Ukrainians in their fight. It's been good to have you tonight. Our guest has been David Graham, the former Chief of International Operational Law Division, the Office of the Judge Advocate General in the Department of the Army, and the former Associate Director of the Center for National Security Law at the University of Virginia School of Law. Thank you for tuning in to NSLT. Be sure to share this episode with a friend. You should probably discuss it. Talk amongst yourselves about how the law of armed conflict might apply to the current situation and whether or not you believe there will be ultimate accountability for the aggressors in this conflict. 
Remember to send us comments, give us feedback, and you can find us for now on Twitter at ABA NatSec. And you can also send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. NSLT's writer and producer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. And my other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with all the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates, or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.